Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Nello Mainolfi. Nello is the president and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Chimera Therapeutics. Chimera is working on targeted protein degraders. These are orally available small molecule compounds. And many in biopharma are excited about them because they have a clever design that allows them to go after targets that have previously been out of reach for most small molecules. These compounds are sometimes called heterobifunctionals. They are chimeras or hybrid molecules of a sort. And they work by engaging a protein target of choice while also recruiting E3 ubiquitin ligases. These ligases act as catalysts for the ubiquitin proteasome system, which acts to drag proteins of your choice into the cellular garbage disposal system where they get irreversibly degraded. So instead of directly inhibiting a diseased protein, you can latch onto it and drag it into the trash compactor. Pretty cool. Nello is a chemist by training, and he dove all in as co-founder and VP, head of drug discovery at Chimera about five years ago in 2016. It's a pleasure speaking with him at length about this exciting area of drug discovery that doesn't really get as much media coverage as I think it should. Now, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com Timmerman. And have you heard of Absci? Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. Absci is already helping some of the best far- partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absci.ai. Please join me and Nello Mainolfi on The Long Run. Nello Mainolfi, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for inviting me. So, uh, Nello, I, I got to confess, uh, one of the reasons you're on this show is because I just love the Italian accent. <laughs> Well, you've had Otello before, so I think uh, we might have slightly different accents, but I'm sure not easy, easily uh, differentiated from a non-Italian speaker. But anyway, I will do my best to retain my Italian accent, but make sure that the English is understandable. <laughs> Otello is a hard act to follow. Uh, that's, that is true. Um, okay, so, you know, as a listener of this show, I like to kind of set the stage for, uh, you know, who the person is uh, before we get into what you do. So where, uh, where are you from originally? So I, I was born in the south of Italy, 
uh, again, this will be my last reference to Otello, not far away from where he actually was born and grew up initially. Uh, on the on the other coast, I grew up in, in Naples, or at least near Naples, which is a beautiful city located on the Mediterranean Sea with lots of history as well as just beautiful landscapes. Uh, so that's the plaque for you guys to visit Naples, although it doesn't require much of a plaque. Um, so I actually uh, grew up there my, with, with my family until I was 19 and then moved uh, in other countries. Uh, but or, again, originally from, from that region. What did uh, your parents do for a living? So my parents uh, were, until a few years ago, they're both retired now, uh, high school teachers uh, in both kind of uh, Italian history and kind of geography, so specialized on particular disciplines. Uh, my grandparents were both in business, so really no scientific uh, heritage in the Minofi family on both sides. They, they value education if they're teachers, uh, so you have lots of books. And did, did you speak English? Uh, no, no, education. So with my family was all about studying, studying, studying. So education was the number one, two and three goal as I was growing up, good and bad. Um, and uh, that, no, they didn't really, they, they grew up in a, in a time where actually at school they were learning French uh, in Italy back, back in those days. And then they never, never really got exposed to the uh, English-speaking cultures, really until I started moving around the world. So, uh, yeah, mostly based on kind of Italian-based education. And, you know, all about, and it is a principle that I continue to apply to my family, you know, always about, you know, the importance of, you know, setting yourself up to have the best opportunities, understanding that you might not end up having the best you know, being able to realize the best opportunities, but at least having them in front of you is what your education path should be focused on. So how did you get interested in science? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I, uh, again, unlike my, my parents and my sister, my sister is a lawyer, so as far away uh, from me as one can be, um, I naturally uh, got drawn into math and science from the early, from elementary school, elementary, middle school, and then eventually high school. I did a uh, kind of a science-heavy high school uh, type of uh, degree. Um, and so everything that had to do with numbers and science. Um, so I used to love, you know, biology, chemistry, math, um, used to love uh, geology and everything that we were learning back, back then at high school. And actually, for me, the challenge was when I started my first degree, uh, which was in Italy, uh, which, you know, gets to be very specialized. You can decide to go into chemistry, into biology. And, you know, those degrees are all different. Uh, my challenge was like, you know, I love science. I love math. I don't want to be a mathematician. Um, I want to be a scientist. What am I going to do? And I ended up choosing chemistry, uh, which was my first degree because I thought that chemistry was the most creative science, because uh, with chemistry, you get to make and invent and create molecules. At, at that time with biology, I don't want to offend biologists, I do that often uh, enough at work, uh, but uh, I, uh, it was very uh, observational science back then, you know, 20 years ago. I think now it's really cool, you know, biology, you can change DNA, you can uh, you know, create new DNA, you can create new RNAs. At that time, biology felt very observational. Uh, and so uh, chemistry was kind of more creative. And I've always been someone that liked to play outside the typical sandbox. So it felt like the right place to start. So you went to university in Italy. And did you just take kind of the, the typical courses, you know, the organic chemistry, inorganic? Yeah, so I started my undergraduate degree in Italy, but actually in the middle of it, I moved to London. So there is a bit of a story there. But yes, the usually if you, let's say, go to a chemistry-based degree in Italy, you will study actually many disciplines. You study biology, you study even physiology, you study... Um, kind of advanced pharmacology, but then you do a lot of chemistry. You do inorganic chemistry, organic chemistry, physical chemistry, 
you do experiments, you do theoretical, very heavy. Uh, and, and just to go back to why then I ended up moving to London. So I've always been fascinated by, you know, cultures where entrepreneurship, I, I only realized later that it was entrepreneurship. I just like to do things, you know, that were kind of outside of the the, the, the usual stuff. And so I kind of realized that kind of, let's call it Anglo-Saxon culture will give you maybe more opportunities to go outside the the the, the well-known path. Um, and I had uh, spent some time in England in, in the, during summers doing, you know, kind of English courses during the summer. And so really loved the environment. Uh, and so I, I kind of convinced my parent, I was 19, to say, you know, let me go to London and finish my first degree. And I remember my parents say, that's fine as long as you come back to Italy after it. And obviously, you know, I've never been back besides on vacation uh, since uh, since that 1999. So um, it's been, I guess, for them, bittersweet. But for me, it's been a great experience. So what was it about uh, uh, London that um, that set the hook for you? So first, I had a cousin that actually was doing a master's degree in London. So I actually, he was the one of the first that told me, ah, you know, this is how it works here. Uh, and then um, I always felt that, you know, Cambridge and Oxford were a bit stuffy uh, for, for my taste. And, you know, maybe a, for so, socially a bit boring. Uh, again, hopefully I don't offend anyone, but... I just felt London at that time, and probably still today, was the most inclusive cosmopolitan city in the world uh, with really good um, universities and colleges. I ended up going in the College of University of London. I was at King's College and then Imperial College. So I got to experience excellent education while you know having access to everything that I wanted to outside of that. So you're in a big city. Uh, you're studying chemistry. When did you kind of hit on the idea of pharmaceutical chemistry? Yeah, so that still actually was a bit far away from my head at that time. So I'm always of the thought that in order to do well, like in life, you have to excel at what you do. So I always thought like if I'm doing a degree in chemistry, I've got to be the best chemist out there. Um, and so in doing so, I remember my... I'm not saying I was the best chemist. I was just telling myself, you got to try and be. Um, and so my my uh, kind of uh, final year um, thesis advisor told me, you know, Nello, you're very skilled. What do you want to do? And I said, ah, you know, I probably want to get a job in industry. And he goes, well, that's a bad idea. I think you should go into academia. You should at least explore getting more advanced degree degrees. And and so actually then in my head was, okay, I'm going to go and do a PhD after the first degree because I started to get into my head that I wanted to stay in academia because it, it would be, you know, the fullest realization of my potential. And so I did a PhD in London. Uh, again, as I said, half was at King's College and then my lab moved to Imperial College uh, we, we moved from the Strand, for people that know London, all the way to Kensington. Uh, so actually, culturally, a huge move. So moving, you know, from King's College to Imperial College. And then, um, again, my idea was academia will be the place where I get to really realize my potential. And at that time, and I would argue probably still today, although I'm not really sure, uh, that uh, doing really advanced organic chemistry especially at the time, uh, uh, synthesis of biologically active complex molecule, the place to be was the U.S. And so, you know, there were places at MIT, Harvard, Princeton, um, uh, and, other, and other places they applied to, ended up, including Scripps, ended up going to Scripps. So this would have been uh, after you got the PhD. Now, what year did what year did you get that? I completed my PhD in uh, two thousand and four. Two thousand and four. Okay, so it's and by this point you're um, you're you're thinking about the pharmaceutical industry uh, or academia. Just to be clear, I was initially thinking pharmaceutical industry, but again, this. Going deeper into science took me completely away fr from it. And so at that moment in time, at the end of my PhD, I'm only thinking academia. This is the place to be. 
Now, being in London, did you have some exposure to, you know, people from industry like GSK, AstraZeneca? Yes. Uh, actually, the beauty about uh, many colleges in, in, uh, in the UK is that they have what, what is called a third-year uh, industry placement. I don't remember exactly the term. So you used to spend six months in a, in a, in a, in a company. And I ended up spending six months in this place called uh, the um, James Black Foundation after Sir James Black's and all this work that he was doing in particular areas of medicines. We were studying um, bacterial, we were studying actually anti-acids and then how they would play into uh, stomach ulcers and, and all this kind of uh, line of work. So I did get exposed, although it was a very tiny company of 25 people, to uh, to industry at that time. But to be honest, I was so focused on my kind of hunger to kind of do many, many things that I didn't quite catch the bug at that point. But I will later. And so if we get to it, you'll see how it happened. So you came to the U.S. to uh, do a postdoc at Scripps, is that right? Um, and, and what was the big thing that you learned or the key experience that you gained there? Yeah, so when I went to Scripps, as I said, my idea was I want to do, so again, in chemistry back then, nothing to do with drug development, the most difficult organic chemistry, which to me is still synthesis of these large biologically active molecules. They used to be a huge thing in the you know, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, and now the strategy is a bit different, but we don't have to go there. So I went into this lab, you know, with Casey Nicola, was our PI, big name in, in, in organic chemistry, uh, and he was uh, actually the head of the department of, uh, of um, chemistry at, at Scripps at that time. Um, and, you know, um, what I learned the most there, and it was a huge change for me. So when I was in London, I used to be very driven, so work really hard and try to do, you know, many, many things that, you know, maybe most people weren't doing at that time. But only, you know, when I when I went into his lab and see the drive and the work ethic of his lab and people there and, and, and my PI, I actually realized that I had an extra gear in myself that I wasn't even aware of. Uh, I thought that I was really giving my best, but I realized that I had much more in me. And, you know, some people will say it's kind of extreme because there we were working. Nowadays, probably it's not possible. Six, seven days a week, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. It was crazy uh, training back then. But it allowed me to actually realize that sometimes we have limitations on what we can accomplish based on previous experiences or based on what people tell you that it's doable. And to be honest, this lesson, I've taken it with me in everything that I've done, and especially at Chimera here today, where I never think about setting a goal based on what the status quo is, but setting a goal based on what we think it's really possible, above and beyond what we believe that people tell us that is possible. So really, that was my key thing that I always carry, and I tell everybody that wants to hear me. Actually, that's a really important learning early in your career, that your capacity is actually further out than you even realize. And, and that's a, a big part of management is like noticing a young person or whoever's at your company and helping them see for themselves that they, they can actually do more uh, if they set their mind to it. Everyone will have a, a let's call it a, a limit or a breaking point. And we got to be careful not to take yeah. people to the breaking point. And I know many of us have been there. I've seen my breaking point. I've gone past it during those years. Uh, and I know so how to, how to kind of play, you know, kind of away from it. But we have to be open to the notion that we can do, only we know what we can do after we experience it and not before. Okay. So um, you, uh, how did you end up going to industry? Did you go straight to N Novartis then? Yeah, so the, where did the bar come from? So I was in Acadie, I was in Scripps and I was loving it. It was stressful, it was busy, it was crazy. 
but I really loved the, the experience. And then at that time, uh, I think even today, we had all the big pharma companies coming every year on site and, time, and try and recruit the talent from these places. And I'd never been exposed to all these pharma companies before then. You know, we used to have everybody, Novartis, Pfizer, Lilly, BMS, Merck, you know, all the big, all the big players. And they really do a nice job telling you like what they do, how they do it, what the, the opportunities are, what is the mission, what is the goal. And to me, I finally, just looking at those presentations, I realized that what in my head was my life goal, which was being the best chemist. I realized that that was only a tool, actually could become just be a tool to a much bigger goal, a much bigger vision or mission that was actually changing the life of people. I know it sounds, honestly, I know it sounds a bit corny, but I, I truly believe it. And I came home from those meetings thinking there is no other job that will have the social impact that biopharma has in the world. And so to me, that became like the light switched in my brain and then it became, let me figure out how to do this. Okay. And so that led you to Novartis? We can go into why I chose Novartis and not Merck and Pfizer, but maybe it's not important. So I came to Cambridge, and so this was in 2007, never left the Boston area since then. And my, and this is, I tell people a lot um, uh, these days, I think when you go into industry, you have to make a very uh, informed decision about why you're going to particular places and particular companies and, and, and what you're trying to accomplish. So for me, Deciding to go into big pharma was purely because I thought that I would have the training, the resources to learn what drug discovery and development would be like. And so for me, Novartis, I say it every day, was an amazing experience. I spent seven plus years there and I was lucky to be involved in leading programs that were successful. And I got to see what drug development looks like uh, in a very relatively short amount of time. Well, and this was around the years when Novartis was making a large investment there in Cambridge uh, at the Nibber campus. So you had you were surrounded by a lot of uh, bright colleagues. Exactly. And I think you make a good point. Uh, we were Novartis was making a big investment and there were a lot of really young up and coming people that if you had the commitment going back to the work ethic and pushing your boundaries, if you had that in you, you know, the opportunities were, were large because we were trying to make it happen while we were building the site here in Cambridge. So I had a lot of opportunities to do things that probably in another large pharma I wouldn't have so, so early in my career. So uh, you're, um, you're there in, in Novartis for about seven years, uh, still an ambitious young guy. Uh, how did you meet this uh, character, Bruce Booth from Atlas Venture? Yeah, that's, that's uh, an interesting story. So one other part of myself, which probably is not the best part is, you know, I, I need to learn, you know, I can't say every day, we, we, we say every day, but you know, I need to have like a steep learning curve. I like to be outside of my comfort zone. It's just fun. It's exciting. It's somewhat, you know, sometimes can be off-putting, but, you know, it's how we grow. And so in a big pharma, for as much as I had plenty of opportunities to grow, you, especially if you're successful early on, you hit a place or a, and a time where that's, the learning curve is not going to be as steep. And so after talking to a few people that I trusted in the industry, both inside and outside of the company, and I always, at that time, Scott Biller, who was the CSO of... Uh, Agios, but had hired me to Novartis, had gone to Agios, and he was one of the people that I went to to also get some advice. Uh, and, you know, the discussion was, how do I, what, how do I think about next steps? And, uh, and what is the best place for me? And at the end of the day, I realized that being able to now do the next step, which is taking the strong scientific knowledge and training and mixing it with new learnings and now are more kind of business and company building and things that I've never been exposed to was going to be my next kind of learning curve. And so I got exposed to Atlas Venture through another project 
that uh, I was helping them drive, which was a company called Race Therapeutics that was working on cancer metabolism. So I was recruited into that company to drive drug discovery. Okay, so so you you decide to leave Novartis, and and you're you're beginning to map out a path in management, like no more hands on the bench. You're going to get into you know, leading teams. Yeah. So, you know, back in Novartis, uh, actually, I was leading teams and programs uh, already. And so I had the experience of building science from the bench, building science from managing teams. Now, to me, it was about building science through bringing in all sorts of other disciplines that were not just scientific. That was the, the leap that I wanted to be part of. And so this is what, you know, early company formation allows you to do. I, when I joined that small company with Atlas, at Atlas uh, was about, you know, we have some cool signs from, uh, from MIT and from MGH. How do we make it into a company? And that was, you know, a, a 12, 15 months experience. And it was, you know, hugely impactful. Yeah, yeah, that it, that will put you out of your comfort zone. Uh, there's a lot of variables. So you got to figure it out. <laughs> and and so at that time, uh, actually uh, tying protein degradation and Bruce Booth, since you asked me the question, um, you know, I've always at Novartis as well. Uh, my thing was, how can we improve drug discovery and drug development? How can we find disruptive technologies? So even at Novartis, I was in charge of few initiatives that I don't want to. I don't want to go into the details of. Uh, so I always had this thing. And so when I was in this uh, company, Race Therapeutics, in this project at, at, at Atlas, we had a really hard time to validate the biology of the target. And so this was early 2015. I said, let's use protein degradation, which at that time was very niche in a way. Uh, not even the big publication hadn't really been out, uh, but obviously was in the, in, the, in the literature. And so Bruce caught eye of this. And he had been interested in building a company in protein degradation. He will tell you that he had discussions with other companies. I don't want to say any specifics there. Um, and so when the first project race was um, kind of winding down, so we had a discussion. I remember it was around Christmas of 2015. How do we build the best protein degradation company? And so that's where the conversation started. Okay. So... Can you, for those not familiar, can you describe the concept of targeted protein degradation? Because this has actually been around for about twenty years. Exactly. Yeah, and I, and my pet peeves is it's it's not talked enough about. So thanks for giving me and us uh, some time and some space. So very at the very high level, what is protein degradation? Is the ability to co-opt the ubiquitin proteasome system, with this, which is the engine that degrades proteins in our cells to maintain protein homeostasis. So co-opting the ubiquitin proteasome system to degrade and remove disease-causing protein. So that's at the high level of the concept. You use small molecule that bind to the disease-causing protein and to the UPS system through a class of proteins called D3 ligases, you bring them together and you then have the protein of interest uh, being basically taken up by the, this UPS system and degraded through the proteasome. So it can be highly specific, it's catalytic, highly powerful, and really the idea behind it is with this protein degradation is the opportunity to go beyond the draggable proteome of today, which is still kind of 20, 20, 15 to 20% of the proteome, and expand the opportunities in drug development. Now, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. 
explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com Timmerman and get a copy of their ebook, Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com Timmerman. And have you heard of Absci? Absci is all about creating new possibilities in the realm of protein-based therapeutics. What does this mean? Absci has a fundamentally different approach to drug discovery. It designs and develops next-gen biologics of any modality, from antibodies to T-cell engagers to completely novel protein scaffolds, including a futuristic format it calls bionic proteins. Because Absci conducts its screens in its scalable production cell line, it collapses several steps of biologics discovery into one integrated efficient process. Absci also has a unique computational antibody and antigen discovery approach for isolating fully human antibodies from disease tissues and using these antibodies to identify novel drug targets. Absci does all this with a powerful combination of deep learning AI and synthetic biology technologies. Absci is already helping some of the best far- partners in biopharma translate their ideas into drugs. Check them out at absci.com and absci.ai. Now, when we first talked about this, I think it was 2017, you had the Series A for Chimera, um, and you talked about the proteasome. The first thing that came to mind was, um, you know, I've heard of that like once or twice, you know, with drugs like Velcade, uh, Bortezomib, now marketed by Takeda, and uh, Carfilzomib is an Amgen drug. And those drugs, if I'm not mistaken, they kind of jam up the proteasome, which is the cellular garbage disposal. So you get that jammed up in um, myeloma cells in this case. And essentially, like a whole bunch of proteins start building up and they essentially like, you know, cause the cell to burst and it dies. So that's that's how they treat that form of cancer with a proteasome inhibitor. But this is different. It's very different. It's almost the opposite. So proteasome inhibition, you basically take the end game of the ubiquitin proteasome system, which is the proteasomal degradation, and you block it, as you said. Once you block it, all sorts of protein accumulate. Actually, all sorts of proteins. The reason why that drug is used in, in multiple myeloma is because they found that multiple myeloma cells are much more sensitive than the rest of our body to proteasome inhibition. But I can assure you, if, if you let that system run, all, our, all the cells will eventually die because the proteasome and the cells need to be destroyed for the, the homeostasis of each of our cells to be in place. Proteasome, TPD, which is targeted protein degradation, is, is instead bringing one protein to the proteasome for degradation. So it's actually not blocking it, it's enabling the proteasome to degrade a protein that wasn't planning to degrade fully because the cell is not signaling that. But thanks to our bifunctional small molecule, we're presenting it and the proteasome is a very uh, kind of flexible machinery. It will degrade anything that is tagged for degradation. And so it does it very, very quickly. So the molecule itself, you said it's a small molecule, but as I understand, it's, it's shaped kind of like a dumbbell. It's heterobifunctional. It's got two ends to it. Uh, can, you, can you describe the molecule for us? Yeah, so the molecules that we use, and you can have all sorts of different molecules, but let's stay with heterobifunctional molecules, which is the way that we call them. It is heterobifunctional. You can imagine a bispecific molecule if people like to think about larger molecules. This is still small, and it has two ends, as you say, the dumbbell idea. One end binds to the protein that you want to degrade, and the other end binds to this protein called E3 ligases that are part of this ubiquitin proteasome system. And they create this complex, this so-called ternary complex, where the E3 ligase comes in proximity to the protein that you want to degrade, thanks to this bispecific small molecule that brings these two proteins together. And then the cell does all the pharmacology. So basically what we're doing is actually enabling 
a neo or a new protein-protein interaction. That's all that this molecule do. The rest is done by the ubiquitin proteasome system. Spatial proximity allows the E3 ligase to transfer ubiquitin. The ubiquitinated target protein is recognized by the proteasome and degraded. And our small molecule can do this cycle over and over again. And so this is why when we present the data, and we presented the data recently with very small doses, and very low exposures, we can get really high level of degradation. We showed that for IRAC4, for example, we could get to undetectable level of protein because this system is very powerful and catalytic. Well, I want to come back to some of that data in a minute, but so I, just so I understand the concept, you've got this like two-pronged molecule, so to speak, and it it drags the the protein with the target of interest, the, the diseased protein, into the cellular garbage dump to be degraded. It kind of lat latches on and drags it there. Uh, and, and so, uh, and you don't need to, because it's got this bifunctional mechanism, you don't need to bind with the active site on the disease-related protein, right? That's a great point, Luke, that I should have mentioned. So why is this modality so potentially transformative? besides the cool technicality that we just discussed, is the fact that you can just bind to any protein. You're not inhibiting the function. You don't have to bind to a catalytic pocket. You just have to find a surface of the protein to which a small molecule can bind, and you can, in theory, degrade any protein that you can bind. So the really uh, big step here is the fact that we have a technology that, in theory, can go beyond every small molecule because we don't need to inhibit, we just need to bind to them. So we're not limited by those 10, 15% of protein that one can inhibit. And so we have the power of this genetic-like knockdown, right? We can just take the protein and completely remove it post-translationally with the flexibility of, of, of small molecule tract development. This molecule can be dosed orally, they go to every tissue, to every organ. So we don't have the issue of oligo-based therapeutics that have to be liver targeted or injected in tissue. So the transformative potential, which I, which I don't think is fully appreciated, is that here, unlike these therapies where we're irreversibly changing the genome or where we are reversibly changing you know, the RNA, but we have limitation with delivery, we're actually here engaging post-translationally. So we're going directly to the protein, we're removing it, and we're doing it with a small molecule. So the sky, in theory, is the limit of the technology. You have some of the classic advantages of, of small molecules with uh, cheap and easy to manufacture, um, oral bioavailability. Um, predictable PK and PD, although I do want to ask you about that. But they're they're not exactly the same as a classic small molecule, right? There, there's, a, there's a little bit of chemistry here, uh, isn't there? Like to, to get the, the bifunctional part, and, and there has to be some kind of linker between the two ends? Yeah, so uh, if I told you that this was a plug-and-play small molecule technology, in a way I would also be uh, not making the case that you need companies like Chimera. So it's true that uh, this, the chemistry is not um, commoditized, but it's not the chemistry per se. The chemistry is standard chemistry. is how one builds these heterobifunctional molecules to have the physical properties, the drug-like properties that will make them behave as drug-like molecule while they do very effectively the job of degrading protein. So just if you give me one minute to just go through that, you need to build this heterobifunctional molecule, so, so two ends that bind to these two proteins, and you need to build the linker in between that would allow this so-called ternary complex to be highly catalytic, highly specific, and highly potent. So that's a very kind of technical TPD optimization. At the same time, this molecule that has two ends and a linker in between has to be soluble, metabolically stable, absorbable and clear through small molecule mechanism. So all of those are part of 
let's call it the secret sauce of companies like Chimera and others that have put molecules in the clinic and demonstrated that, yes, actually this molecule can behave like small molecule in terms of PK, PD, and on top of it, they obviously have the extra power of going after protein that small molecule cannot go after, or antibody cannot go after, or, or RNA cannot go after, uh, and do it with the simplicity again of the small molecule. Yeah, yeah. Now, can I real rewind real quick to, I, I mentioned 20 years ago, Craig Cruz at Yale and Ray Deshays at, I think he was at Caltech at the time, they published this paper, the, the, the first paper on this idea of targeted protein degradation, but it kind of sat there on the shelf, like nobody really ran with it for a while. Why was that? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, you know, uh, we worked with Ray uh, before he decided to go to Amgen when we were funding Chimera. It was actually in our SAB. So we, we, we were lucky enough to hear all the stories as well. So in a way, um, they did an amazing job. And then Craig actually continued to work on, on it. I think maybe Ray a bit less uh, as he continued to, to do other work in his lab. But I would say that um, the idea was, can we uh, recruit a, a, a disease-causing protein to the UPS system for degradation? Can we prove that concept in the cell? And they did it. The challenge was that at that time, uh, uh, E3 ligase small molecule binders were not known. The only available tools that they had at the time were these large peptides. So these molecules that they were making, these heterobifunctional molecules, were very large, not cell permeable, not having the drug-like property. So I remember, if I remember correctly, they used to have to micro-inject these molecules in the cells to demonstrate cell activity. And so why did it take, maybe let's not say 20 years, but why did it take like 15 years or so? Because, and what really was limiting was chemistry. And so two events happened we understood that the thalidomide mechanism of action, there was a drug that was already, as you know, the story available in the market for many years was through engaging an E3 ligase, which was Cerebron. So we now found ourselves with a small molecule that was binding to an E3. And then we found ourselves with learning that if one alpha peptide that binds to VHL, which is another E3 ligase, could be modified into a small molecule-like E3 ligase binders. So it was a chemistry campaign. They changed the world of drug discovery and now allows us to have small molecule degraders that have the right properties. And I just want to add one more thing. This is why at Chimera, we decided we're not going to take Cerebron and VHL as the end all and be all of protein degradation because they're there just because they were the first one to be discovered. And we spent at this point tens of millions of dollars on novel E3 ligases to enable what we want to do with tissue-restricted degradation. It's such a fascinating story. We've seen this many times before where a drug that's been on the market and given to people for a long, long time, uh, we find out later uh, how the, the mechanism really, really works. And it's a little different than what was originally worked out. Um, and then that opens up the path for, you know, a whole bunch of new companies like Chimera, like, well, our, our Venus was there, uh, came out of Craig Cruz lab a few years prior, but um, there's others like, you know, uh, Monterosa, Nurex. Um, there's been something of a boom. Why do you think there's been well, C4 is another one. What um, has gotten people in the industry so jazzed about this new modality? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that every, so everybody, those large companies and now smaller companies that want to build real drug development engines, you have to have targeted protein degradation in your toolbox because it's a complementary technology to go after highly genetically validated targets that have been elusive to other technologies. So very simply, this is going to transform medicines, no matter what. We're not going to drag the other 80% of the proteome. I think it's silly to say that, right? But if we go from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, it will have a huge impact on patients and availability of new drugs that other technologies, in reality, 
we we talk a lot about genetic therapies, but um, there is no comparison with the power and flexibility of TPD, what this field can do versus still niche spaces like genetic therapies. So that's the answer. This is why every big pharma company has either collaborations, and we have you know two of those, or has internal efforts or both, and then why there are small companies, which I think is always where innovation is. And the small companies are going to transform medicine through protein degradation, not the large companies. I mean, you see that with RNA, you've seen it with genetic therapy. It's the small company that paves the way to these new innovative therapies. And then there is a fuller appreciation of the market and commercial opportunities of these of these therapies. Okay, so about five years ago, you're getting a Chimera up and going. You've got this new chemistry tool, uh, the heterobifunctional molecules. It's got a lot of different, you know, it's a platform kind of technology. It can go lots of different directions. Like, you know, how do you uh, decide where to start, which targets to go after and which indications? So I need to, I, I do this all the time, but I'll do it here too. Uh, I, I do need to thank Bruce Booth and Atlas Venture because they had the, uh, the patience and the enthusiasm to do this right. And hopefully we've done it right. But which is, let's not just run with the first idea and get into the clinic. I mean, obviously we did it really fast anyway, but I, I was very adamant about we need to, not differentiate, but we need to have a, a philosophy about how we do this. And so we invested in two things. One, we only work on targets that there is no other technology can, that can unlock, unlock the real biological and clinical value. So not a incremental improvement, but a transformative biological change over existing therapies, which comes with the risk. But the de-risking aspect of our pipeline has been that we've focused on pathways that have been already well validated in the clinic and commercially. So that was how we started that. And the second part was, if we want to build a real biotech company, you know, my, my, my vision about Chimera has always been, I want this to be a commercial stage biopharma company. Uh, we need to do things right. And some investments will take years to, to, to deliver, but we need to invest early on. And so on the platform, we had two tracks. One, we need to understand you know, everything that I was telling you, the kinetics and the ternary complex, the structural biology. We need to understand that while we build these programs. And then we need to think about how we evolve it. We need to evolve and we continue to innovate. Otherwise, we just die as a company, right? You, if you don't innovate, there's 200 other companies that are going to say we have the next generation, right? And so we've had the patience from early investors, for current investors, and even from our latest, actually, fundraise, public fundraise, that actually the, the goal was we're not going to extend the runway. We're going to invest in new technologies, new targets, and new clinical opportunities. And I think that has been our philosophy from day one. Um, okay. You mentioned a little bit here on the, the dosing and kind of getting things right. Can you talk a, a little bit about the, um, the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic characteristics of these um, chimeric protein degraders, how it's a little different than your traditional small molecule? Of course. So as we've talked about in principle, first of all, we're looking at a method that removes a protein that has never happened before. So we need to get comfortable with the idea, how do you understand how that happens? How do you monitor it? And how do you then develop in the clinic and beyond a therapy that removes protein in a catalytic manner? But the beauty of this mechanism is that it has an a, a, a in, integrated biomarker in it, which is your protein. Unlike other technologies, it's really difficult to have a direct biomarker, and here we have it. Um, so understanding the impact of compound in, in humans in the presence of, so your heterobifunctional drug, in the presence of your protein, 
the UPS system and the protein resynthesis machinery, which we haven't talked about, and then understanding how this molecule is able to degrade the protein while the molecule is being cleared and while the, uh, while the protein is being resynthesized is where Chimera has spent a huge amount of time and resources. We are a company that believes in translational medicine being on the front end of every program. So when we design a new program, we think about what's it, what are translational assays? How do we measure it? How do we measure pharmacology and safety? And so you need to understand well the relationship between all these partners so that once you go in the clinic, you're going there with the dose, those in regimen and those in paradigms. And so for IREC4, which is the data that we disclosed in October, is really playing out in a way, in a, in a way probably better than we expected, but at least in line philosophically with what we wanted to see translating from preclinical into the clinic. Well, let's talk first about IRAC-4. What is this target? Why did that rise to the top of your priority list? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we I love immunology. Actually, what I didn't mention, uh, Novartis, I, I worked on a complement for many, many years. And actually, I, I, I developed, discovered the first factor B small molecule inhibitor that now is in late, cl late clinical development. So I believe there is a huge need in immunology there, there are many diseases that are not served by ex existing therapies. I think that while immunology gets a lot of attention, uh, it's, not, uh, it's, it's clearly not as much attention as, let's say, oncology. And for a disrupting technology, it's a unique opportunity. Uh, and so we, we know that most of the most successful uh, drugs in immunology right now are large protein antibodies. And so... They still come with the challenge of injectables and, uh, you know, different PK. And so the idea was, let's go in a pathway where there is high degree of validation from several antibody medicines, but where we can block the pathway at a node where we'll be much superior to any other therapy that is there because it's the central node of that biology. And so the IL-1 TLR pathway for which we have drugs on the market against many cytokines, starting from anakinumab, from Novartis, the IL-1 beta, uh, and others, we have drugs in, in the clinic against IL-18, 33, 36, a downstream effect, TNF, obviously Humira, IL-6, couple of drugs. So really well validated. The key, the key is we don't have a small molecule drug that can block this pathway fully. And that's what an IREC4 degrader is. In a landscape where, as you know, small molecule anti-inflammatory drugs are having a hard time establishing themselves. If you think about some of the safety issues with the JAK inhibitors, and if you think about some of the efficacy, maybe challenges with some of other mechanisms. Yeah, people have uh, have become more aware of the JAK inhibitor um, safety issues in, recently. Um, but so so you're going to go upstream of some of those inflammatory cytokines you mentioned uh, that uh, uh, antibody companies have have been able to have some success with, and and so you're thinking that a small molecule here could uh, be effective against multiple autoimmune conditions, multiple inflammatory conditions if if you're if you're successful. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with this uh, IREC4 degrader, so we block not only the IL-1 family cytokine and also TLR agonists that signal through the MyD88 receptor in which IREC4 is a key component, but also, as I said, we can block some of the secretion of the some of the other cytokines that come downstream. So if you look at the data that we released in, in October, we were able to show really meaningful uh, inhibition of interferon, IL-1-beta, IL-6, IL-8, IL-10, IL-12, IL-17, TNF-alpha. So if you have a drug that inhibits this plethora of cytokines in a profound manner, you know, all the way to, to 97%, so we have a, a targeted approach that has a pleiotropic anti-inflammatory mechanism that has human genetic de-risking in terms of safety, as well as initial clinical safety experience as well as preclinical. So things are really coming together for this target and this pathway to be disruptive in immunology. And obviously we're still early. I'm not going to claim 
this is the next Humera, but to be honest, that's the goal in a pill. Well, th- these are uh, this is a phase one study, and you did a, a whole variety of different dose cohorts. But what you saw, I mean, like you say, 95, 97%, uh, you're getting rid of those inflammatory cytokines. Um, and, and what kind of safety profile are you seeing? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so we're seeing with a single dose, which to be honest, we didn't expect. And this is a bit of something, something that was, uh, that went beyond our expectation. With a single dose, we were able to knock down the protein in a dose responsive manner, all the way to undetectable level. We say, uh, in, uh, in the data, 96%, but in a way, we were basically hitting the lower limit of detection of the, of the protein. So that, that profound degradation, 85% or more, has been able to impact the cytokines 50% or more, all the way to 97% breadth of cytokines with really benign safety. I just want to remind also that while this was a single dose, the degradation actually lasted for at least six days, thanks to the peak in the potency of the molecule. So we're in a way reading safety of, I would say a week, we're not reading safety of a, of a day. So the fact of having such a benign profile you know, really the only thing that we saw that is possibly and probably related because the safety uh, at the time when we released the data was still um, uh, uh, unblinded, uh, was still blinded, sorry, uh, was, you know, some headaches and some nausea. So really benign phenotype and at, at some dose, it's not even at the top dose, for example. But you're not doing something, you know, really aggressive, like you alluded to, you know, gene editing, for instance. Like if you were to like gene edit out this kind of thing, uh, you know, that's a whole different story. Here, uh, you you can have a perhaps a once weekly dosed small molecule orally. Is that is that kind of where you think this is going? No, we're thinking this is going to be a once a day. So the opportunity with having such a prolonged degradation profile is to then actually use it for your advantage. And then you dose it every day at much lower dose so that as the, the exposure increases over time, you're actually able to hit this really profound degradation at much lower dose. So what we're thinking about, and we'll share some data before the end of the year of our multi-dosing uh, schedule, but we're thinking every day, single day dose for... Uh, obviously, depending on the type of disease, but you can imagine this is going to be some type of chronic dosing um, that will have this immediate impact on on a lot of inflammatory signaling, uh, but with the flexibility of being able to pull back, remove the molecule and seeing the protein go up uh, fully actually in a few days. It's a small molecule, so it allows for easy repeat dosing. You're not altering someone's DNA. Uh, so they still have what, whatever is happening in their biology that leads them to produce excessive amounts of, of these inflammatory proteins. That's still there. You mentioned that the, the, they're still the protein synthesis. They're still making that. You just are, you're just dragging it down through the garbage dump uh, every day. Yeah, exactly. We're not we're not messing around with uh, the genome, uh, but we're just getting to the problem, which is increased inflammation and removing the key protein that is responsible for signaling this increased inflammation in the nucleus and creating these uh, pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine environment. Now. You um, you ran randomized phase ones with, you know, they, they look pretty rigorous, um, more so than I am used to seeing from, say, newly public biotech companies. I mean, this what's your philosophy about how you are running this clinical development program? I'm going to take that compliment, Luke. Uh, but just to be fair, though, to the other companies, um, so for going into immunology, you have to run, a, or at least it's customary to run healthy volunteer phase one study. Obviously, um, for these studies, unlike oncology, you don't have the risk-benefit scenario. And so you really want to get a read of safety in a stepwise manner. I think the rigor, though, that we apply to this trial, if you see we have 
a single ascending dose in healthy volunteer. We have a multiple ascending dose in healthy volunteer. And we also have a, a, a single uh, but multiple dosing in patients to look at how the PKPD translates from healthy volunteer to patients. And so I think your comment, which again, I'm, I'm glad you, you noticed, goes to the rigor that we put into the design of the primary and, and more important, the exploratory biomarker, looking at knockdown in blood, looking at the knockdown in skin, looking at systemic biomarker, looking at ex vivo biomarkers, looking at skin biomarkers, then going to patients and asking the question, uh, are patients seeing, experiencing the same level of knockdown and downstream effect? So that the phase two dose that we choose for this drug is as de-risked as possible. I like to say that our phase one has to deliver a drug that is fully de-risked in terms of mechanism. And the only question that we will ask in, in a phase two randomized study and eventually phase three is what is the clinical efficacy of the drug versus what's out there. And not that we're going to run this competitive study, but I think for us, we expect the drug to work. We just need to understand what are the diseases where this is going to be a blockbuster versus it's going to be just an efficacious therapy. And if we deliver the right molecule with the right PKPD and understanding of the biology, then we can go into those studies putting a lot of money behind them. Are you thinking about companion diagnostics? Is there going to be a way to uh, select patients most likely to respond, given your mechanism? It's a good question. So, um, I mean, the short answer is no, but I just want to qualify it a bit. We understand that many immune inflammatory diseases have a driver that see activation of IL-1 receptor, TLR receptors. And so we expect that those diseases will be benefiting from a drug like IREC 4 degrader KT474. So we're planning to prioritize the diseases where there is either preclinical genetics or clinical experience where this pathway has been shown to be relevant and then go and, and, and dose all patients. Understanding that there is some heterogeneity, but given the pleiotropic mechanism that we're seeing even in our phase one study, uh, you know, we're pretty confident that we can go without selecting patients. You know, um, you mentioned that um, maybe this this um, space is a little bit um, undercovered or, or underrated, which it's kind of a strange place to be because on the one hand, there's a ton of investment from big pharma and, um, and biotech startups. I mean, there are certainly people in the stock market well aware of targeted protein degradation. But it's not, you know, it's not headline news. It's not, uh, uh, you know, on the cover of Time magazine or something like this. Um, what, what do you think is going on here? So, Luke, I, I'm counting on you after this interview, after this podcast will show up on, on the New York Times. Um, no, it's a fair question. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I have a very simplistic answer, but it's not very very, very probably satisfying. So one aspect is this is a chemistry-based technology. It's about getting the heterobifunctional molecule that does the biology that you want. And when people hear chemistry, it's just very nuanced. It's not as sexy as, for as much as it's, again, as we said, probably not as powerful as, you know, going there and editing your genome. So I think there is a part of it of you know, what's chemistry is just a bit more nuanced. And so it's difficult to, it's just a bit more difficult to explain. But I actually put this on me and on us in the, in the TPD space that we need to do a better job at, uh, as the clinical data is starting to also emerge, to actually showcase the real transformative power of the technology at a very simple, at a very simple level. I think we tend to go into complicated, you know, kinetics and all this stuff. And I think we might lose, uh, you know, some audience there. But again, probably none of these answers are the real ones. I asked myself, to be honest, if you ask me what's the most frustrating part of being in this space, it's exactly this. I don't think we're getting the exposure. And I don't even want to say, you know, this is a Wall Street thing. Actually, it's probably not because we are getting <clears throat> lots of investment. It's more of 
this is a transformative modality that has that should be at least complementary to some of the ones that are very much on the on the on the on the media uh, and and I also see in the, in the you know in the in your colleagues that cover healthcare you know they 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 you know I see them covering very preclinical studies with other technologies but not groundbreaking data with this so we have to do some work there well, I can see that the biology definitely excites people, given that biology is just so hard and complex and so many diseases. And when someone comes along and says, um, you know, we've identified a new gene, like, say, PCSK9, just to pick one out, and then we can make an antibody against it. I mean, naturally, like a lot of scientific people get really excited about that, and, and that shines through. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's... Um, uh, the, the most logical path toward, you know, successful drug discovery and development that's going to help a whole lot of people. I would say the same, Luke. There, is, there are 35,000 papers on STAT3 and the role of STAT3 in all sorts of diseases that you can imagine. Now, you know, we, as you know, we have a program and there is going into the clinic soon. We can remove that, that, that oncogenic transcription factor. It should cut, that cannot be done without technology. You should have kind of the same impact out there. But anyway, I'll stop complaining. Yeah, no, it, it is a good point. I mean, a lot of targets that people have been looking at uh, have been inaccessible. And, you know, drugging the undruggable, it's almost a little bit of a cliche at this point. But I mean, it really, I mean, it really is. If you can do, if you can target some of these, these targets, which we know the biology on pretty well, and you can do it with a small molecule that's orally available and, and you know, has, you know, predictable PK and PD characteristics and doesn't, you know, uh, enter the nucleus of the cell and alter people's genes. I mean, that's, um, that's pretty attractive. Agreed. Nello, um, where do you think this thing, this company, this space is going to go? Last thing I want to ask you in, say, five or 10 years. I think the next 10, 20 years will be maybe let's stay with the next 10 years. There will be many, many degrader drugs uh, that will be in the clinic and beyond uh, by small and large companies. Uh, I think that this, this technology has been proven already. There are drugs out there, again, that we later discover they work through degrading proteins. So we know this can be done. Now, our Venus and Chimera has shown, have shown that you can do that with this type of molecules. So again, I, I think it will be... The space will continue to, to, to have huge impact on patients. I mean, at the end of the day, that's why we're here. And then the rest will come. Um, for Chimera, the next, you know, five years is, you know, we have three programs in the clinic. We want to have at least one new program every year going forward. So we'll have, you know, a large clinical and preclinical pipeline. And, you know, we're, we're trying to grow 10x from where we are today in the next five to 10 years, ideally five. So... There is a lot of growth that we need to do, but we need to continue to execute and deliver data and 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 medicines uh, in patients that where we can show uh, the power of this technology and the impact they can have on on patients and diseases. Well, you start with degrading Iraq four, and you work uh, your way through um, the rest of the target list, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, Nello Mainolfi, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.